It is really good to see you. Uh, welcome to Hillside, just like Jane said. So good to have you here, and so good to have our Edge and Riptide students who are in the room with us. A couple of right here in front. We're so glad you're here. Uh, this fall, we are taking a journey together through the central section of the third Jesus biography in the Bible. And in that central section, the uh, historian Luke recounts Jesus's journey to Jerusalem to fulfill his life's mission. Now, about that. A lot of people, uh, even people who have been around church for a long time, have a very generic understanding of Jesus's life mission. And in their minds and in their imaginations, it's this right here. But in reality, Jesus's life mission was this. That's right. Ben and Jerry's fish food. This is the number one ice cream of the Seitz family at this moment. I got to ask you, have you ever had Ben and Jerry's fish food? If you are lactose intolerant, I weep for you. It is that good. But Jesus's life mission was particular. It was distinct. And, and here's what it was. It was to come to earth, to die on the cross, to rose and rise again, so that all human beings could first be cleared of charges. We kind of know that. But just as much so that all human beings could be set apart as royal priests. How about that for a job? And lastly, respirited, meaning given a new heart, a new operating system so that we would desire to live out that prestigious calling to pour out God's love and his beauty in the world. Those were the ultimate purposes of Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. It was to affect those three things. And as disciples, we have a journey to make to Jerusalem as well. But here's the thing. Happily, our journey is different from the one that the disciples took with Jesus because ours is on the other side of Jesus's journey, which was successful. And this means this. We take our journey as people who have been cleared of charges. And that means bye-bye guilt, bye-bye shame, a whole new lightness of being because we have been forgiven and we've been washed. We take our journey as ones who have been made royal priests. And that means bye-bye boredom, bye-bye purposelessness. We have something important to live for to mediate God's love and presence throughout the world. And finally, we take our journey as ones who have been respirited, which means we have a brand new heart, a brand new operating system so that we want to share the love of God wherever we go in the world. What else about our journey to Jerusalem? It's not geographical. Rather, our Jerusalem is to be able to say, get this, to be able to say, on the last day of our lives, either when we go to be with the Lord or the Lord descends to rule and renew, we want to be able to say on that day, this is our Jerusalem, exactly what Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. 
I have kept the faith. And as Christians, we are supremely confident that we are going to reach our destination. We're going to make it to Jerusalem. After all, the Creator has entirely paved the way for us. First, He's given us a verdict of not guilty right now, in advance of the last day, when every human life will be evaluated, including every Christian life. That's the first thing He's done, not guilty right now. Second, He's given us His own Son, the perfect human being, the radiant human being who endured every single temptation we face and passed right through it faithfully. And he's given us that son to live inside us, to direct us from the inside out. And lastly, he's given us his own spirit, get this, to energize us, to give us new power, to electrify our wills. And you know what else? To whisper over and over again how much he loves us and is for us. And that means, unlike the disciples, our Jerusalem journeys, they're not fearful. They're not fretful. They're full of hope. They're full of confidence. They're also full of drama and intrigue because we actually don't know all that lay before us on the road. This morning, before we take communion as a family, I'm going to walk us through Luke 10, 28 through 36, which is a great story. It's a story of Martha and Mary. So if you have your own work Bible with you, this would be a good time to pull it out, open it up to Luke 10. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read it. Dear Father, we come to you this morning to hear so that we can then joyfully do as apprentices of your son. And this is because those of us here who have believed the gospel, we are your royal priests as well as your adored children. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you, come, descend upon us, and speak to us through this wonderful story. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This is God's word for us. First thing to note, this episode in Jesus's life immediately follows Jesus's Good Samaritan teaching in Luke, the passage that Brian Murphy brought us last week. And in that wonderful message, Brian suggested that the church is the in in the parable. Was that an eye-opening observation or what? I haven't been able to stop thinking about that all week. He was saying, we are the place where Jesus, the true good Samaritan in the story, delivers the battered 
travelers that he rescues along the road. And that means that our job here as hillsiders is to welcome everyone who comes here and to provide a comfy room in which to heal and to learn alongside us shoulder to shoulder what it means to follow the risen king down the narrow road of faith. Last week, I attended a pastor's retreat in Pacifica, and although it started on Monday, I didn't get there till Wednesday. When I drove up, uh, the retreat organizer, my friend Matt Robbins uh, from my Davis days, did something really wonderful. He had all the attendees out on the deck to welcome me. It was really, really great. And instantly, I felt a part of the club. And I was always happy, also happy that I brought a box of donuts uh, from Johnny's. Uh, that was good at that moment. But it reminded me of how critical welcome is. You know, that, that big Dan, we are so glad you're here, embodied with those guys out on the, on the, on the deck. It, it, it set the tone for my whole experience of the retreat. And it got me thinking, you know, if here at Hillside, if we are going to be like our superintendent encouraged us, the inn that Good Samaritan Jesus desires that we would be, we're going to have to similarly give a big welcome to everyone the king brings here. And I was talking to Katie Weibert this past week. She leads our welcome team, assisted by Allison. I want to say they are looking for new team members for the welcome team right now. They're looking for people who will greet. They're looking for people who will ush. I think that's a word. And they're looking for people who will keep watch out front. We always have one person out in the front. And so I'm wondering right now, are there five people in this room right now who will join our welcome team for this next year? We need it. I need five people. Who will do it? Christine Gilmore. Who else? Four. I just need four. I'm not continuing to preach until we have five. We need them. David Murphy. Three more. We need them. Thank you, Floyd. Two more. Is that Tyler in the back? Tyler Young? Perfect. You work with Ty. One more. Perfect, Rod. Thank you, Hillsiders. That's excellent. We got five more. Okay. Riptide and Edge. If you're here, I want you to stand up. Cameron, Josh, Evie I know is here. Olivia. Katie Weibert last week said to me, we made a big mistake over the last few weeks. We did not include Rip, Riptide or Edge in Amazing Race 22-23. We need to do that. Which, okay, we do. Would some of you consider joining Katie's welcome team? Just serve as a greeter, an usher, an out front person one time a month. Will you do it? <laughs> Evie, you're hired. I can't see who's back there because my eyes are wrong. Uh, is that it? Who is that? Oh, it's Kaylee DeYoung. Sorry, my, my uh, contacts are, are fogging. Anyway, Kaylee, you're hired. Okay. Who is that? I can't see. I, oh, it's, uh, it's Madeline Apez. All right, you're hired. Okay, you can sit down. Very good. We got Katie. We have more people on the welcome team. Stop by and talk to Katie before you go. And in case any of you think about running out, I remind you. Sophia is videoing the service, okay? We know you were here, okay? Anyway, verse 38, Luke reports that as they're on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus enters a village, 
and Martha welcomes him into her home. Now, some of us actually know this story. In fact, if you've been around the church for a while, you know this story very well. And you're already primed, we're already primed to kind of look down on Martha. But before we take a wrong turn in our interpretation, let's notice something. Martha is essentially living out Jesus' Good Samaritan teaching, isn't she? She's welcoming someone into her inn, and she's meeting his practical needs. Again, in the Good Samaritan story, we learn that the life that leads to life, according to Jesus, is the life of practical love for the neighbor, the life of practical, sacrificial, need-meeting love, starting with the people who were right around us, like the people who live with us. That's what neighbor means. And by the way, that's why the small group practice of exploration, which I shared with you three weeks ago, is so fitting for us disciples. Let me remind you, uh, or if maybe you missed church three weeks ago, exploration is our name for the third activity of every hillside small group. And in exploration, after we've spent time together in the Word, considering it carefully, what do we do? We close our Bibles. We invite the triune God to draw near to us, and then we ask each other a very simple question. How do you sense King Jesus calling you to follow him? We're going to ask that question of each other. And then we think out loud, each of us thinks out loud around the circle, and we listen as our fellow disciples ponder. And you'll remember that I offered this to you three weeks ago. If one of our group mates is coming up blank, we offer this prompt. And imagine I'm the one in the group, and I'm the one who's coming up blank. This is what my group mate might say to me. Dan, is there an act of practical love that King Jesus might have you take towards someone you live with? Why don't we start at the center? What about Allison? What about Josh or Drew? What about Roman or Jenna, your neighbors? And let me ask, does this prompt now make more sense in light of last week's passage? This is Good Samaritan logic, isn't it? But again, if we're reading today's story in context, we won't immediately conclude that Martha is off base because she's doing stuff. That can't be it. Doing stuff, especially welcoming people into our homes and into our hearts, and into our circles, that's fundamental to following Jesus. So the lesson here has got to be something a little bit more nuanced. Let's keep going. Verse 39, we meet a new character, Martha's sister Mary. And unlike Martha, who's running around pouring Prosecco and passing out bruschetta, Mary is seated at Jesus' feet. And she's listening to his words. Now, it might look to us like Mary is a loafer. But that's vanilla, while the reality is fish food. You see, in the Bible, to describe someone as sitting at another's feet is to say that he or she is a disciple of that person. Mary has made herself a disciple. So instead of loafing, what's she doing? She's doing what disciples do. She's listening, and she's learning. Well, Martha is not happy about being left with all the work, and she's getting more and more frantic. And finally, she darts over to Jesus. And I use darts for a reason, because the verb there often means sudden movement. It's sometimes used to describe the appearance of angels in the New Testament. And she unloads on Jesus. I mean, don't you care? 
that I'm doing all the work. Don't you care that my sister is a slacker? Tell her to help me. And Jesus' answer is a stunner, not just because of what he says, but because of how he says it. And think about this for a moment. Jesus is the guest. Jesus is the rabbi. Jesus is God in the flesh, and Martha is ordering him around. And yet Jesus responds, I wish I could do this. Jesus responds without even a drop of defensiveness or wounded pride, but instead tenderness. Verse 41 and 42 again, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What is Jesus's point? What's he saying here? Now, a knee-jerk interpretation might be that, that only one thing matters in life. Something like personal experience of Jesus or contemplative prayer, and that's actually how it's been read sometimes, but we know that can't be right, right? Again, because of the context, Jesus has just established in the previous story that practical, sacrificial, need-meeting service is fundamental to the Christian life. But think about it. That's not even what Jesus' one thing is necessary line means on its face. Think about this for a moment. Usually, when we say to another person, one thing is necessary, we're not saying that there is only one thing, right? Rather, we're saying that there is one critical thing, one indispensable thing for everything else to be okay. And I'll give you an example. Sometimes on a really, really good Saturday morning, Allison will bake scones. This is a reason for celebration in the site's home. And uh, we, we look forward to it. It's my mom's recipe. My mom who is here today. Hello, moms. Glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah. Been waiting for a year and a half for you to visit, but anyway, we're <laughs> glad. To, anyway, so <laughs> you, you seem to go to Darren's church a lot, but that's uh, anyway. Anyway, anyway, it's closer. I, I understand. Anyway, we uh, we love mom's scones even more than we love fish food. But imagine that Allison were to give me scone baking lessons, which I've asked for. And if Allison were to say to me, and she did say this once, Dan, when you bake scones, one thing is necessary. You've got to get the amount of milk right. And when she said that, she wasn't saying that milk's the only part of baking scones, right? She wasn't saying that after getting the milk right, you don't have to stir or cut the dough uh, into wedges or bake at 350 degrees. Rather, she's saying that there's one thing of supreme importance, which if neglected, will distort the entire scone baking process. And I'm sure that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, if you're going to bake great scones, meaning live the triumphant life of love that Jesus died to make possible, you got to get the milk right. And the milk is loyal, loving, listening to him. Loyal, loving, listening. 
has got to be the defining, the organizing activity of the Christian life. And why would this be? It's actually not hard to figure out. I mean, first, without loyal, loving, listening to the living Lord, we are liable to run into all kinds of ministry that Jesus has not called us to do and get totally angry and strung out in the process. Second, without loyal, loving listening, we are liable to run from ministry, challenging ministry that Jesus has called us to do. And finally, without loyal, loving listening, we're liable to do ministry that Jesus has called us to do, but with Martha-like anger and resentment, which is neither sustainable for us nor nourishing to others. Here, take the scone, you ingrate, right? So here's the big idea of the morning. Here's God's wisdom for us on our own Jerusalem journeys. It's simple but powerful. Loyal and loving listening to the Lord is the first priority of the Christian life. Let me say it again. Loyal and loving listening to the Lord, the first priority of the Christian life. And I think that this reading is bolstered by the verb distracted in verse 40. Get this, very interesting. The expanded definition of the Greek verb here, distracted, is this. Pulled away from a reference point. And again, our story isn't diminishing Christian service. Rather, the story is critiquing Christian service and a Christian life more broadly that has no consistent reference point. Or maybe better, no consistent reference practice. And that reference practice is loyal, loving, listening to the living Lord. And we can set apart time for loyal, loving, listening by attending a hillside small group. Because in our hillside small groups, we regularly reserve time for listening. It's part of exploration. Now, we're going to take communion in just a few minutes, but before we do, I want to take just a moment to talk to the teens in the room. I was really happy to see there are quite a few here. And first of all, I want to say to the teens in the room, your church loves you. Okay? In fact, fact, I have an idea here. Wait, wait, wait. Stand up, everyone but the teens. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's give them a standing ovation. Our teenagers, we love you. We love you. Okay, that's good. If you were standing, we would have had you take a bow in that moment, okay? We'll save that. But we want to say, as your Hillside family, we know this is a very difficult time to be a teenager. This is hard. You have pressures, challenges that we did not have to face when we are your age. We are here for you. Your edge and your riptide leaders are here for you. That's why Jesus is sitting in the front row. We're here for you. We love you. And you know what else? We want Hillside to be an inn for you. A place you love to be, a place that you enjoy coming to, a place you enjoy bringing your friends to so they too can learn the way of Jesus, okay? But I want to point out something in this story I think of special relevance to you if you're a teenager. Notice the emphasis the story places on anxiety. 
Jesus points out to Martha that she is, in verse 41, anxious and troubled about many things. And I know that your generation is awash in anxiety. There's a new story about that in the media basically every day. Get this. Listen to me. I read this past week that from 2007 to 2016, emergency room visits for people age 5 to 17 for anxiety episodes rose 117%. That's more than doubled from previous years. And it's no coincidence that in that same period, the use of personal electronic devices exploded. And to give you the numbers, 2005, 45% of teens had phones. By 2010, it was 75%. By 2018, 95% of teens had phones, with 50% reporting being online almost constantly. Just a new world for you. Here's the point. Jesus, your shepherd, the living Lord who died for you, he loves you so much, he does not want you to be awash in anxiety. Jesus wants your basic mental state to be one of calm confidence and peace and joy. But if you're going to reach that place of calm confidence and peace, I want to tell you, the path there will involve what Jesus is commending in this story. It's new habits of quiet and consistent listening to the king who is alive and loves you. But here's what's key. Listening will require something from you. It will require tech subtraction. I want to just tell you plainly. It's going to require substantial reduction in the time you spend on screens. And it's going to require the ruthless elimination of sites and platforms that everybody is on, but that kills your joy. Promising affirmation of various kinds, but actually making you feel less beautiful than everybody else. Promising wisdom, but actually filling your head with stuff about human personhood that has no basis in reality. Kooky at best. Promising community, but actually keeping you disconnected from the people and activities that really nourish you and make you feel whole. And let me say this to the teens. You could be 17. You could be 13. Nothing keeps you from doing what we've talked about today. You're old enough. You're not a kid. Nothing keeps you from making loyal, loving, listening to Jesus individually and in your edge or riptide small group your premier life habit, your reference point around which everything else in your life revolves, whether it's AP calculus or swimming or clash of clans. And nothing keeps you from taking practical steps to make listening to Jesus possible. Nothing. You can do it. The primary one being tech subtraction. Now, what tech subtraction might mean for you practically is something you have to have a conversation about. 
you need to first talk to your parents about it. You need to talk with them and say, I want to do some tech subtraction, but I'm in this world. Help me figure out what to throw over the boat. You should also have this conversation with the people whom Pastor Stephen has brought together to shepherd you and care for you. That's what Jesus does at this church. That's what Lynn does at this church. It will require a plan. You'll have to make a decision because to do nothing is to continue to be swept down the raging tech river that is our culture. And that's a recipe for crazy. I want you to hear it. Nevertheless, I want to offer you this. If you hatch a loyal listening plan, you think it through, and your plan contains a specific provision for tech subtraction, meaning an app that you remove from your phone, a website you delete from your favorites list, a day, and I mean this, that you designate as tech-free, where your phone stays in the, in, the, in the drawer all day, and if you email me by tomorrow night and describe your plan, <laughs> your loyal listening plan, I will have for you next week at church a pint of fish food ice cream for you, okay? I will, okay? I want you to hear me. I will come through on this. If you make a plan for listening to Jesus, it's probably going to involve time and silence in the morning before you do anything else. It's going to mean solid commitment to your group. You know, Grant Freeman back here, another leader. And it contains a specific provision for tech subtraction, and you share your plan with me by tomorrow night, okay? I will buy you a pint of fish food. Man, I hope it's on sale. I'll say that, okay? <laughs> time for communion. Communion is a great time for fresh starts, new beginnings, like new commitments for all of us to loyal, loving, merry-like listening. And in communion, we come as close as we can in this age to Jesus, our Lord, who's here, who's here in this room, who's here inside each one of us who know him and who's here in these elements. And in fact, because he's here and he loves us and he's, because he's just called us to new commitments, to loyal, loving listening, let's take a moment to do just that. Pray with me in your own heart and then let's take a minute to breathe deeply and to listen. Lord Jesus, our good portion, as your beloved children, as your royal priests in this world, set apart to share your love and your care and your justice with the whole world, we pray you'd speak to each of us. We're listening. Give us each a word of encouragement or instruction or direction. What we need to follow you this week. Let's take a minute to breathe deeply and let's listen.
Lord, thank you for the story we've gotten to relive. We want to be children who draw close to you and listen. We know you have so much to say. Words of love, words of instruction, words of direction, words that help us to have the self-knowledge that we must have for flourishing relationships. And so as a Hillside family, we're looking forward to making this year one in which we put special emphasis on loyal, loving, listening like Mary. And we know that some of the fruit of that will be joyful, good Samaritan-like service rather than angry, resentful service. Lord, help me. I am determined to grow in this area. I know you're saying loud and clear to me, slow down and listen. Thank you for your grace and your generosity. Thanks that when we draw near, you draw near to us. And we get to enjoy your favor and your love and your approval and the promise of an extraordinary future. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.